Welcome to Leadership Unleashed. Today's leaders must be experts in emotional intelligence, the art of persuasion, and masters of motivation. Each week, you'll hear hints and tips to help you develop confidence, build your identity, and your skills as a leader. Here's your host, authentic leadership expert, Leslie Hunter. Throughout your life, there will be people who will have an influence. There will be key decisions that you make, and there will be experiences that help to shape and forge your direction. My dad used to say to me, it's your life, you are the leader of your life, so go out, lead it, and live it. Now today's show is slightly different. It may sound as if my guest is simply telling you her personal story, but she's a fascinating person. You may say to yourself, why am I listening to this? What does this mean to me? And how does this help me be a better leader? Well, remember we've talked previously about how story, storytelling, narrative and metaphor can help you to understand and develop your skills as a leader. So join me today as I talk to my guest, Kim Simpson. Kim is a member of an elite group. She is one of the world's leading experts in explosive devices. And she's working today as a tactical advisor to one of the police forces in the United Arab Emirates. So we're in for quite a journey and quite a life story. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Kim, do you blow things up? I have blown things up in the past, but generally my skill set requires me to put things back together once they've been blown up and to uh, assess how they were made in the first place, what the explosive was and what the potential damage it could have done. Wow, CSI in real life. CSI in real life. Oh, God, that's fascinating. Did you have a chemistry set as a kid? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't, but I did do chemistry at school, and an A-level chemistry, and, and I'm not actually a chemist. My uh, colleagues back in the UK where I worked at the Forensic Explosives Lab were primarily chemists. Where I worked, wait a minute, where I worked at the, what a name dropper, where I worked at the Forensic Explosives Lab. Yeah, I bet you get, I bet you get invited to a lot of parties with that one line. <laughs> Well, you know, you know that game where you play 20 questions and guess what somebody's profession is? Oh. I generally win. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> I can guess that, yeah. yeah. For, the, for the listeners, since this is a radio show and you can't tell, Kim is blonde, petite, very attractive. The last person you would expect to be involved in explosives or something that's actually a very, very serious you know, subject matter. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. said you went from considering veterinary psychology nursing and so that I mean that's quite a diverse range talk me through that and tell me how you basically ended up in the situation that you are now with that specialism uh purely accidental mm-hmm. um I started off as you mentioned how as- aspiring to do veterinary medicine from um very early childhood you know I, I loved animals I was fascinated by you didn't animals. blow any up I didn't blow any up I didn't blow any we're up. a very very animal friendly show <laughs> here. Yes. absolutely no um one of the first television programs I remember watching was um 
one of the David Attenborough wildlife oh, shows, yeah. you know, and seeing a lion taking out an antelope. And I was, I was totally bereft and always had pets and, and just had this fascination with animals. So wanted to be a vet. I can associate with that. That, that was, my dad was a vet and that was my, my calling, I felt, was to be a vet. Yeah. But for various reasons, my, my path changed, as, as obviously yours did. So. Very much so. I mean, I got to 14 or 15 and my, my, gran, my nana said to me, one, you'll, you'll never be a vet. And I don't know whether that affected me psychologically or whether I just Thanks, came to the realisation <laughs> that... Yeah, actually, she was right. I I wasn't going to get the grades that I needed to do veterinary medicine. So I started thinking around, you know, what would I do if I couldn't be a vet? Um, I I read um, oh, the Ascent of Man. Was fascinated by Desmond Morris's book Man Watching. Yeah, I remember that, that sort one. of yeah, thing. Yeah. So you know, yeah. I, I went down the route of thinking along the lines of psychology. And I got offers of places at um, Liverpool and Sheffield University to do psychology as a degree. Uh, but then I met a guy and, oh. you know, my parents were, were having problems in the marriage. So my, my studies went down the pan. I wanted to be out of the house as much as possible, you know, at this crucial phase in my life. And and so I didn't get the the grades that I needed to to do the psychology degree either. Um, once I got my A-level results, I'm thinking, what am I going to do with myself? So somebody said to me um, that one of the local hospitals was going through the recruiting process at that time. So I gave them a ring and I said, you know, I've got my A-level results, I've got these O-levels, would you be interested? Could I come along and have a look at the hospital and what's involved in nursing because I might be interested. It's fascinating, you know, because what what you're saying there is you started off with a clear aspiration of what you wanted to do. For whatever reason that that changed, um, you decided you might like to do something else um, in terms of the psychology and then because that didn't quite pan out again you, you went to almost a third option the parallels are quite staggering because I wanted to be a vet um, didn't decided not to basically my dad managed to put me off oh, right. <laughs> um, uh, he knew I wasn't going to be happy just clipping budgies toenails and whatever and he, he gave me the harsh realities he, yeah. in, in terms of being a leader to me my dad was fabulous in that because he, he showed me really that that I was never going to be, at that time, able to fulfil the aspiration of what I wanted. Mm. Um, I then went down a secondary route, so I did a, a microbiology and bacteriology degree and then applied to the RAF because oh, they right. wanted microbiologists. Yeah. But actually, I really wanted to fly the planes. Snap! Me well, too. I, even, I even applied to be a fighter pilot or to be a well. pilot, and they said, well... We we're not we don't take on women. Exactly. But try to try the army and helicopters. Well, do you know they never gave me if they give me that option, my life might have been different because they told me that I couldn't fly the planes and I really I was really upset by that. Mm. So you went to a hospital and I think you're gonna tell me that you ended up in nursing. I went yeah. back to university and ended up in teaching. And just think yeah. we could have been flying. Flying on, all, yeah, just nowadays we would have been in those jets. Wouldn't we just just think of the chaos yeah. we could have caused? Oh, good God. Yeah, right. Let's, yeah. let's, oh, let's go, go back. <laughs> we would have needed your skills as a nurse, so take me back. <laughs> hmm. 
Nursing. Nursing. So, so yes, I phoned the hospital and said I'd be interested to come along and find out about nursing and what would be involved and take a look at the hospital. And basically, when they found out what my O-levels and my A-levels were, they said they offered me a job. Wow. So <laughs> I didn't think twice. I took it. Okay. And I did enjoy nursing. Um, I enjoyed the hands-on patient care. Um, and it was before those days when um, nurses were involved in a huge amount of the managerial paperwork. Yeah. But it was, it was starting to come online. Right. And um, I did nine or ten months' worth of, of my training. But then my parents' marriage fell apart. Um, it very badly affected me. And um, I ended up leaving nursing and going from Lincolnshire down to the southeast of England to live with my mum just before I ended up um, marrying my boyfriend, fiancé at that point. Right, so I can understand, I can understand the veterinary psychology nursing. There's kind of a theme or a thread that runs through there. But how do you then make that leap into something that is so, so unique, really? I mean, I, I know a lot of nurses, I know a lot of vets, I know a lot of people in the psychology mm. field. I only know one explosives expert. <laughs> so how did you, I mean, you're a real leader in that field. Uh, it can be a very, very big community, surely. No, how did you not. get into explosives? Purely by accident. I really don't like you using the word accident and explosives <laughs> in the same sentence, Kim. <laughs> well, I mentioned my fiancé. I mentioned I got married. I was married at 20 to um, a Royal Marine. Okay. And at that point, the thought of career went out of the window. Right. Um, we moved and lived in our broth. I was, nice part of the world. <laughs> I was overqualified for... Um, jobs that I could get on a part-time basis yeah. or, you know, an ad hoc basis, I was underqualified for jobs that I would want to make a career. So instead I had babies. Okay. <laughs> you still haven't got the explosives bit, although I can... <laughs> no. Well, by the time I, ha I was 23, I'd had my two daughters. Um, my ex-husband, as I say, he was a, a Royal Marine, um, he was commissioned um, 18 months after we were married, so he, be he became an officer. Right. Uh, he went back into officer training, um, which changed the dimensions of his career structure. So from have, signing up for nine years, becoming an officer, he had, because he was um, a core commission, so he was transferred from being a non-commissioned rank right. to a commissioned, to a commissioned rank, rank, it was a short career structure, so five years. So it, so what you're saying is that going into an officer's role for your husband actually shortened his his career. So they train and develop these officers as leaders and then shorten the amount of experience they're going to get from them? Only, only initially. Okay. So because he'd made that transfer from the ranks into being an officer, they give them um, a short career first, and then when they get to the end of that period which is four or five years, they are given the option of extending to a full 20-odd year Right, career. so they kind of do a trial so, period. So that there's a yeah. trial period. To see if they can make that transition from being a non-commissioned rank 
to being a leader. Do you know that that's interesting? You know, that concept of giving somebody, um, I know we've gone a bit off track here, but giving somebody a, a, almost that trial period and recognising the fact that in that particular structure, in that organisation, um, it's not going to be for everyone. No. And that, you know, some people will take to it and will have the attributes and the skill set and, and others may not. And, you know, maybe a lot of organisations could learn from that. It went, you know, in terms of recruitment and, and transition for leaders. Exactly, and that's it. Because there are some people that can make that transition quite easily from being a follower yeah. to becoming a leader, and some who can't. Okay, I'm still taking you back to explosives, though. I'm not, okay. I'm, I'm not okay. getting this. Okay, <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll go back to the story. So, my, my, my husband was commissioned, short career... Mm -hmm. And by the time we got to the period where he needed to decide whether he was going to extend his career right. or whether he was going to leave the Marines and go out into the big wide civilian world, my stepfather at that time was looking for somebody to join the family business in computing. And my ex-husband was a good communicator and and leadership material. Uh, he could quite happily stand up in front of an audience and sell something okay and that's what my my stepfather needed so he decided at that point at 28 to leave the Royal Marines and join my father's business big decision for him very big decision um when he was commissioned his peers were two years three years younger than him and he felt that if he stayed in the Marines, he could get to a certain point, but there would be a glass ceiling where the age would make a difference. That's so interesting. He made the choice to change career at 27, 28, rather than getting into his 40s, where it would be much harder for him to, to change to a more meaningful career. A brave decision for someone to make. Very much so. Yeah. It also coincided with the time when our daughters, our oldest daughter, were about to start school full-time, with the youngest one, you know, 18 months behind. This leads into what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Right. You know, I'm 27, 28. I've brought up my two daughters. I'm not having any more children. What do I do with the rest of my life? And that's a real key question. You know, what, what do I do? What do I do next? Where do I go next? Um, you, basically, you were at that point where you had the rest of your life to lead, but you didn't have the direction you were going to lead it in. That's right. And I didn't have any useful practical skills. I wasn't a shorthand typist. I didn't have anything to offer other than my academic um, qualifications from school. So my O-levels and my A-levels. That's all I had to fall back on. Okay. I could have gone into nursing Are you as, really a, telling as an me auxiliary. That people with some O-levels and A-levels, they allow them to blow things up. Are you really telling me that that's all? <laughs> because that, I'm Mr. Trickier. I would have loved to have that, done that. That was what, what my mum spotted an advert in the local courier newspaper for assistant scientific officers at the Royal Armaments Research and Development Establishment. But you couldn't say that after a few glasses of wine. <laughs> <laughs> so, no. So, Radi Fort Halstead, Seven Oaks, had this um, advert in the local courier for ASOs, Assistant Scientific Officers, and all they were asking was six O-levels. Really? Yep. So, my mum saw this and said, why don't you apply for this? So I did. And why not? And, shock horror, they offered me the job. 
So let, let's just rewind that. Well, you're saying that, in essence, it is an accidental journey, but there were opportunities that presented themselves at various points. Yes. And um, one, of the, one of the key features of a, a leader, from, from my perspective, is that, first of all, they're receptive enough to recognise an opportunity. Um, and then they also have the sort of critical evaluation skills to be able to, to weigh it up and, and almost do a risk analysis and say yes, yes. And or, I think I did that subconsciously. It exactly. Was def- it was definitely not a conscious analysis on my part at that time. But another key, another key feature for me, um, and correct me if you, if you disagree, but another key feature for me, for a leader, is that they're prepared to, to almost say, oh, what the hell, what if? What if, what's the worst that can happen, and be prepared to take the risk and take the jump? So, I mean, you were, yeah. going, into, you were going into something that was completely unknown. Uh, you had never had any real inkling or aspiration to do that. What was your first day at work like? What, were, um, what well, did they ask you to do? When I went and had the interview, I went up to have a look at the lab where I would, was most likely to be placed. I mean, one of the things that they said to me at, at the interview, my, my key um, area of interest was biology, you know, the veterinary, yeah, the, veterinary the, the, the nursing, the yeah. psychology. It's all got a, a, a biological trend. And so one of the things that they said to me at the interview was, we do chemistry and physics here. Are you still interested? <laughs> so I thought, in for a penny, in for a pound, why not? You know, I wasn't thinking of it as a major career. It was something for me to do, right. uh, you know, while I was there supporting my daughters through their schooling and, and bringing them up. So I went up to the laboratory and found out that it was dealing with IEDs, improvised explosive devices. It was providing forensics for courts to put terrorists behind bars. Now, to my mind, it was it was a natural progression. I was married to a former Royal Marine who had done service in Northern Ireland fighting against the provisional IRA. He'd been he'd done six months in Cross Maglen. Right. And one of the first terrorists that I was told about or um, described, no, who was described to me when I was at the laboratory was an involvement in the Hyde Park bombing and my husband knew him from Cross Maglen. So I I almost felt as if this was giving me an opportunity to finish what he began. That's a a wonderful way to look at it, a way to finish what he'd begun and and to, to continue continue leading that leading in effect that that story through yeah, yeah and in the long term i ended up serving more time as a an mod civilian than he served as a, as a serving royal marine yeah because you i mean you have been i was going to say at the chalk face not not really the chalk face you've been on the front line and fully understand if you don't want to talk about it but i mean you you've done two tours of duty Two tours of Afghanistan, uh, of duty in Afghanistan, yes, two five-month tours. Two five-month tours, and, I mean, that really puts you in the, the, the heart of things, and as a civilian. As a civilian, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't out on the ground, I wasn't out doing patrols, I was cosy and safe behind walls. First tour was at Lashkugar in uh, Helmand province, and my second tour was at Camp Bastion. 
Wow. You hear about these things on the news and you, you see these, but to actually speak to somebody who's physically been there and mm. been part of it. Yeah. So what exactly does an explosive expert do? Because you, you've clearly said that you're, you're almost at the post-explosive stage. You're more interested in once something has exploded, you want to almost... Talking about leadership and leaders, you almost go in reverse. You, you're at the end stage and you're now working back and saying, how did we get into this situation? What actually caused this or what, you know, is that, is that what you do? Um, no, it's, I, it's, I don't it's, know it's, what you do. <laughs> that up. I'm not quite sure what you it, do. It's more the, the physical aspect of how was this device delivered? Right. How was that explosive material got to the point where it, it exploded and it caused damage. Um, an example for you, I, I went to the 7-7 bombings. I dealt with the um, bombings at, uh, or the bomb that went off at Tavistock Square. God, I didn't know that. Um, and I wasn't a first responder, obviously, and, and I'm not a police officer, so I don't conduct the criminal investigation into it. But what I did was assist with the criminal investigation in providing the, uh, the forensic evidence from that bomb scene to the police. Right. Where Tavistock Square was concerned, it was for a coroner's court. Um, I was involved in the Warren Street um, failed device on 21-7 and that did lead to court so you know I went into court and gave evidence against the perpetrators in that. So you so you're the you're the specialist with that expert knowledge and that expertise how did you build up that knowledge? Apprenticeship really on the bench working alongside other forensic scientists when I first joined the forensic explosives laboratory it was a very small um group of people within a larger organisation. Uh, I think that there were probably about 10 people. Um, the vast majority of them were chemists. There was one electronics expert. And within the first three or four months of me starting at the laboratory, I was put to work with Alan Faraday, who was the electronics specialist. And he was my mentor. He had been um, involved in um, many of the major bombings during the 70s and 80s, so he had a vast amount okay. of experience and Mentoring. knowledge. And he mentored me. Mentoring. Yeah. And another, another key area that we've touched on on, on previous shows and said that uh, to, to develop as a leader in any field... You know, in, in any field at all, coaching can be useful and training can be useful, but mentoring as a, a particular developmental yeah. process. And in, in this instance, I mean, mentoring clearly has helped. It's passing on knowledge, oh, isn't definitely. it? It's passing on knowledge, yeah. passing on experience. Yeah. And I would imagine, in, uh, you know, not, not to trivialise it in any way, but in your field, passing on learning from mistakes because you, you cannot afford to, to make mistakes. No, you only have one chance. Yeah. And if it's lost, it's gone forever. Um, when I started at the lab, um, I, I literally would sit at the bench with Alan 
writing his notes for him as he was doing examination of the uh, the physical items that would have been submitted to us by the police and learning from his thought processes. So we would discuss what he was doing, why he was doing it, what he was thinking while he was doing it. And then that would build up from um, just notes of the physical dimensions and details of those particular items any sort of chemistry analysis that needed to be done with that. Also feeding um, evidence into other disciplines. I'm an electronics and explosives expert. I don't do fingerprints, I don't do DNA, I don't do hair and fibres. But my right. actions, because in the sorts of scenario that we're dealing with, explosives are dangerous materials. If you don't know how to handle them, DNA and fingerprint people don't want to be involved in explosives. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, so can, I can imagine why. <laughs> so, so, so the explosives experts gets first dibs, if you like. Right. So what we do can compromise their evidence. So I, ha you know, I had to, you have understand to understand enough to be able to make yeah. sure that there are always um, compromises to be made, and you have to accept that you are going to lose something. Do you know that? You've said a couple of things there that, again, really strike home. Because as you're talking, I'm constantly sitting here thinking, and how does this help somebody as a leader mm. um, compromise and knowing when to compromise and when, when not to compromise, crossing different disciplines? But I think the real key thing you've just said there that, that strikes a chord with me is, I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do the other. And it's, it's having the, the confidence to say, yes, I'm an expert. Mm. I specialise in X, Y, Z not in X and a little bit of A, Y and a little bit of B, yeah. Z and a little bit of yeah. C. But I can facilitate yeah. them um, acquiring the samples and the information that they need. Okay. So it's Fast, teamwork as well. So teamwork, a, bit, a big Very one. much so. Yeah. Fast, well, I was going to say fast forward to where we are now, but don't. Just, just hold that for a second. Um, how many... People like you, I mean, I know you're unique, but how many people like you are there, the, these real specialists in this field? Globally, I would say in the hundreds okay. rather than the thousands. We are a very, it's a very small community. Yeah. You know, the UK was streets ahead of most other countries because of the experience that we had with provisional IRA before Al-Qaeda even came across. Yeah, yeah. There have always been naughty boys as well. You said about having a chemistry set when you were a little girl. I didn't really blow anything. <laughs> up. No, not really. I, I grew some crystals and, uh, you know, I made some nasty smells, but I didn't really blow anything yeah, up. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, I mean, we always used to refer to, um, to the naughty boy incidents, and generally they were naughty boys. Yeah. You know, they'd have their chemistry sets or they'd be doing a bit of chemistry at school and they liked to make pipe bombs, go out to the woods and blow them up. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's that trivial aspect of, of using explosives that leads into, you know, more criminal activities. Um, explosive devices are used a lot more nowadays by uh, drugs cartels to protect their crops, to protect their caches, to protect their storerooms. You know, so um, 
military munitions, explosives munitions are finding their way into the hands of criminals. Right. As well as, you know, the full-blown terrorist yeah. aspects of, of using IEDs. So you've made the, role, the move from your role in the UK and you're working out here now as one of the leading specialists in that area in the Emirates. Uh, what does your role over here entail? You're pass- are you now in that mentoring role, helping to pass on your knowledge? Uh, yes, fundamentally. Yeah. Um, when I first uh, was approached about coming out here, my I, I thought that I was coming out here to help them to set up a laboratory facility similar to the one back in the UK, the Forensic Explosives Lab. Um, but as it turns out, it, it's it's not that at all. And I am being sucked more into a mentor and a training role here. But I suspect that if something significant were to happen here, that we would need to develop um, a laboratory facility to yeah. process that evidence as well. How does it feel to be such a, a leader and specialist in a field, or, or is it just second nature to you? Yeah, I, I, I don't. I, I've been doing this for over. Well, I, I was 27 years mm. back in the UK. I've been out here now for for 18 months. It's my it's my normal everyday life. I, I don't see it as being anything special. Yeah, but when you know, you must. I'm just just thinking. You know, when you go out for an evening, a nice evening out, and you're enjoying yourself, and you get the usual guys coming up with the chat up lines. You know, I wish. Yeah. <laughs> oh, come on, Kim. Um, I mean, you must have some killer one-liners that. <laughs> None that's pretty, but I've, do you know, I haven't been in that situation. I don't know whether, I, is it something about my persona that just scares people off, you know? No, it might be the flak jacket with, you know, explosive <laughs> expert written on the back. That it doesn't go with the stilettos. And they, you know, we, we need a little bit of, of image, image work here before mm. you go out on your next night out, okay? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Kim, if you were in a position, think about it, um to write a note to yourself way back all those years uh, that you could open now and you were going to give yourself one piece of advice as a leader, can you, can you think what you would say to that younger you? You know, thinking about your journey, thinking about everything that you've, you've been through and you've learned, thinking about the people that have influenced you on that journey. If you could do what we all wish and have that wonderful hindsight and be able to pass a message back because you are a true leader in your in your field now what one piece of advice would you give that young kim can you think of anything the one phrase that is going through my head as you were saying that is self-belief self-belief can you expand on that have the courage and the confidence to believe that you can do it. Well, I think that is an absolutely perfect point at which to say there is so much more that we could talk about, but and not not all about blowing things up as well. <laughs> so, but there's so much more that we could talk about. But in terms of setting out that journey and giving so many hints and, and insights into how you develop a particular skill set 
and uh, an expertise as a leader in a field. Um, all I can say is thank you for that. I wish I wish I had two hours to talk to you and get some more um, some more of your insights. And it may be that if you are willing, and certainly I can ply you with with some wine if you if you wish. Uh, you know, we could we could maybe do another show and talk in detail, not so much about your experiences, but about some of the key things that you think you have learned on on that journey uh, but for the meantime Kim that's been absolutely brilliant thank you so much for sharing that with you're us you're welcome it's been a pleasure and fun <laughs> good that's the whole point thank you now that was a slightly different approach to the show this week but research has shown that giving somebody the opportunity to tell their life story and to use narrative is an extremely powerful way of helping to raise self-awareness and self-evaluate as a leader. And Kim may not realize it, but by taking us on her life journey, she has given us some very key points that are appropriate and relevant to any leader. So let's just recap them quickly. First of all, she had an initial aspiration. She didn't achieve that. She went in a different direction. She asked the question, what am I going to do? And what do I need to do next? But the key message here was that she was receptive and open to recognizing opportunities as they came along. She was prepared to change direction. And when she did finally move into her current area of expertise, she worked with a mentor. She worked with somebody who helped her develop her knowledge, passed on their knowledge, and she took again another opportunity to learn from that person's thought processes. She became a specialist. She has a particular skill set and expertise, and she became a leader in her field. And that's because she quite clearly said she knows what she does do and what she doesn't do. She knows and understands how her work overlaps and crosses over different disciplines, and also when to compromise and when not to. But the core message that ran right through Kim's story was the message of self-belief, having the courage and the confidence to believe that you can do it. Now, there may have been no reference in this show to my signature use of the canine metaphor, but if I was to sit and reflect on my life story and tell my narrative then that is where I have learned my key lessons as a leader. So I ask you now to take a little time, stop whatever you're doing, take a break from your busy schedule and just reflect what are the key points in your life story and narrative? Who were the key influences? Where have you made life-changing decisions? And how as a leader are you going to take this knowledge and help yourself to move forward? Speak to you next time. Thanks for listening today. For more information about Leslie and her book, Who Put You in Charge? Go to lesliehunter.com. There you can also join the pack, a free membership group where you'll receive regular hints and tips from Leslie, as well as access to some great leadership resources. So how are you doing as a leader? See how you measure up by downloading Leslie's free iPad app, the Effective Leader Scoreboard, available on iTunes. We'll see you next week for another edition of Leadership Unleashed.